It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Because of COVID-19 and to protect themselves and others, clubs, organizations and societies have cancelled all their activities for the year. Next year will be a different challenge. But instead of sitting back, letting time pass by and waiting to see what happens, some of these groups with safety regulations to the forefront have decided to diversify. This evening, I'm paying a virtual visit to Crookstown to find out why members of Crookstown Social Club are so excited. The excitement I discover is with good reason. So, good evening. Thank you for joining us. Pull up your chair by the fire and come with me in spirit. It's another edition of Where the Road Takes Me, and we're on our way. This evening on the programme, from historian and author Michael Galvin, we hear how Ireland coped with a different but still dangerous type of pandemic 100 years ago. Hurley repairing and hurley making and playing hurling for Cork in the 60s, turning to rabbits, pigs and stone cutting to make a living in difficult and changing times. And a club that's still going strong after 100 years. Initial members of this club heard the shots at Kilmichael during their first outing. So, what's the common denominator with all of our guests on the programme this evening? The answer? They have all contributed to a book called The Way We Were. It's a book whose quality is evident, and its value, especially to future generations, should not be underestimated. The people behind it are the aforementioned Crookstown Social Club. The job to compile the book fell to club member Mary Mullins. We were over in the Lee Valley celebrating 20 years of the social club in Crookstone. We had made a film. We had everybody sitting down, chatting. Alice Taylor was in our midst. Everybody telling stories. And it just dawned on me, there might be a book here. So I started gathering information, chatting to the people in Crookstone. And the way we were came about. It has been such a fantastic journey compiling it. All new history that was never recorded before. 
like the Bantry line. I pass the Bantry line every morning and I go into work. And little did I know the story behind the Bantry line. That road was actually made in 1881 between Movidi and Bantry. And there was an engineer's report. It's all in the book. And they christened it the Bantry line. And the other bit of fantastic information that I got was the N22, when you're driving out from Cork every day, the N22 wouldn't have been there only for Thompson Roy. He actually was the guy that made the road because it was all boggy land. And Connie Long sussed out all this information maybe 60 years ago. And he was so glad to put a pen to paper and it's all in the book. It's all new information. Right. Isn't it amazing, really, that you can live in an area for so long, you can travel a road every day, and there's so much more about it that you can learn, as you did and as everybody will do, who reads the book? Yes. There's so much information in the book. I appreciate everyone that came on board and people were so helpful. Everybody had their story. Everyone I went to to talk to, they all said, yeah. I have a bit of history. I'll put it into the book. 100 years ago, Ireland had just about shaken off the shackles of another pandemic. In the book, The Way We Were, historian and author Michael Galvin writes, If the Great War took a terrible toll on human life, then a much more insidious and silent killer ranged across the globe towards the end of the conflict, scything down perhaps 100 million people in its grim harvest of death. The grim harvest of death that Michael refers to was the influenza pandemic of 1918 to 1919. While it had a lot of COVID-19 symptoms in its armoury, it had a few extra and dangerous ones as well, like paralysis, cerebral encephalitis, one's face turning brown, and coughing blood. Michael Galvin says that the people of Ireland did not escape the ravages of what was known locally as the Big Flu. No, indeed, and John, um, they reckon that um, Ireland lost about um, between 22 and 25,000 with that virus, and um, well over 100,000, if not more, were affected by it. Of course, no one knew the nature, I mean, medical science as it was, didn't know the nature of the disease. And I think that a big problem was that the spreading of that virus at the time was facilitated by political events, actually, because that was a time of numerous meetings with regard to the conscription crisis and with regard to the famous December general election of 1918. So that, as well as that, it was facilitated also by the numerous railway stations and the railway network that was transporting troops from Europe going and coming across the country. It was also known, Michael, I believe, as the Spanish flu, and was that a bit unfair on Spain? Well, that was actually an innocent misnomer in the sense that um, Spain was neutral in the Great War, so the epidemic, or the pandemic, well, the epidemic at that stage was reported in Spain, but was not reported in the belligerent countries, Germany, France, England, etc., America, etc., because it was believed that would damage the morale of the population in wartime. So therefore, it was generally believed, because of the propaganda, that there was a Spanish phenomenon, hence the Spanish flu. And of course, Spain were neutral. Exactly. So yeah. they were not in the war, so they were free to report it. So that's why it was called the Spanish flu, because it was not reported in any, any other countries for the reason I stated. So everybody assumed that it was a Spanish phenomenon. Here in Ireland, of course, at the same time you had conscription and you also had, as you mentioned, a general election as well. And those two didn't help. 
No, no. And, um, and of course, you had a lot of social interaction as well because you had country fairs, country fairs, markets and so on. And people must realise that the years of the Great War, there was great agricultural prosperity. So there was a lot of economic activity because of the demands of war. Great poverty, of course, as well in the towns and so on. But the other thing that was a, a very um, prominent phenomenon was, as now and as down through the millennia with these plagues and so on, is that the blame factor. The blame factor because of the ignorance of the time. First of all, the pandemic at the time, known as the big flu in our area here, it was blamed on the vengeance of God, the wrath of God because of social and moral decadence that brought about, the, brought about the Great War in the first place. Communism was blamed, of course, that was a favourite one, because of the Russian Revolution in 1917. And also what was known as the Yellow Pearl, that everything was coming from the East, the Orient, China, India, Japan. That kind of myth was abroad as well. My next port of call is to the village of Ahirla to meet Ted O'Mahony, a former Cork senior hurler. Ted and his brother Sean repair and make hurleys. It's good business sense. They're in the midst of traditional hurling territory after all. In the family burial place of Temple Martin, you can trace the O'Mahony's back as far as 1811. The good business sense possessed by Ted and Sean can be attributed to their father Timothy. Ted says his father had a good eye and ear for what business to get out of and to get into. He was living near the village, and uh, he was young, like, he went out on his own. He was first cousin at the lanes, and he went out on his own, and he went down from there, buying the fowl and eggs and everything, rabbits. They were big business that time. He started off, he bought, was it a Chevrolet truck? Cars, yeah. Time, yeah. Back in... About 1928. About 1928, they were a deep truck at the time, but it was all bed after that then for a long time. And he supplied pigs then to companies, I suppose, that a lot of the younger people wouldn't remember today, the likes of Lunham's and Cork Farmers Union. And, That's right. Yeah. It, it was a, pigs were a big business that time. Every farmer had pigs and every, everyone had pigs. They were a big farmer at all. And they'd be looking for transport to Drum, right? There was, there was nothing only the Huston boat. And uh, it was a bit messy to go into Cork with Huston boats. So the lorries came in that time, right? The lorries came in the tortoise. And uh, they started a lot of pigs into Cork. And the Cork Farmers Union, were they in Ballincollig? They were in the, near the city hall, first in Anglesey Street. They came to Bell and Colleague in the 50s. And you had Lunham's and you had Evergreen. You had three or four baking factories in Cork. All gone now. All gone now. Yeah. He was a very enterprising man, your father, because he also, when you mentioned it just a few seconds ago, he made a living from rabbits and poultry. He was exporting those to the UK, was he? Yeah, exactly. London, Liverpool, Manchester. And as well as the meat, then you had the skin of the rabbit, which was used by furriers as well, I presume. Oh, they were very important. They were very yeah. valuable. They were very valuable articles at that time. It's sure like everybody else did. It died out too, like. That's what it did. And at a time of scarcity, rabbits were very popular. Oh, they were yeah. great eating. They yeah. were massive. So something like a chicken, but sweeter, sweeter than chicken. They were lovely articles. How did he manage then for, for petrol at that time? Because there must have been a scarcity. There was, there was coupons going that time. You get so much like everyone are getting, well, I won't say everyone, but the doctor are getting the loans and the palace priest are getting the loans. They had coupons and 
fellas with trucks that are setting them out, that's all, if everyone is around here. Had cars where they were all locked up for four or five years. That long, yeah? Oh, they were, yeah. time of the war. I know a couple of men around here had baby Fords, and uh, they were all in dry dock for a couple of years anyway. So they were, couldn't get coupons. The mix of metosis then, of course, put an end to the rabbit business. Finished them, yeah. Yeah. It did, just about 1954. Then your father went into the transport business, and I suppose it was a good time to do that, because coming up to the 60s then, you were seeing the end of a number of the local railway lines. Well, well they closed the Cartman-Croom Railway in 53, and they closed the Benroon about the West Cartman in 1961. It was all road transport in. The business boomed in, like. It was very handy, too, for a lot of good drying beef, besides um, drying beef to the railway, Pike is in here at home, and Pike will the railway again into the wagons, like, it was all slavery and slow motion, but the lorry came, it sped up the thing a lot, but it didn't know themselves, really. Once the, once the lorry was loaded inside the yard, it was after Mellor, there was no more second piking. All the stories you hear and all the people you meet on this evening's programme are included in the book The Way We Were. It's a gem of a book, and one you can enjoy immensely, regardless of where you come from. Mary Mullins, a member of Crookstown Social Club, compiled the book, and Mary says it more than made up for the disappointment of cancelling all the events they had originally planned for the year. We had our party this time last year uh, in the Lee Valley and then we decided that we would meet when we'd go back in February and we put proverbs together, what songs we would actually put into the book, what um, old cures and we were making such good headway. And then in March, COVID-19 came. So then all we could do was to phone each other, but it was great because it kept up all the, um, the contacts with the people with the women and um, we worked on like that and then we had a beautiful day in July and because nobody had met for months everybody was feeling a bit down so we had a big garden party here everybody met up people brought their stories they were delighted to meet up with each other again we had a fantastic day and we put all this together right and I presume the book then took the place of events that you had to cancel yes it did, yeah. We have exercises every Wednesday. We have cooking demonstrations. We do arts and crafts. All of those were gone. But then everybody had their little homework to do, and they did it and came back with all the little crafts and all their stories, and they were all quite happy. Right, and of course, putting it together was exciting, but the most exciting part of it all was when you saw the finished product and you had it in your hand. Oh, my goodness. I went to James Hosey to print the book in Balancholic. I think I must have driven him crazy because I never compiled a book. I never wrote a book. I went over to James and I said, I have a bit of um, information here that we'd like to make put into a book. And I said, I would like uh, maybe 100 pages. And he looked at the, what I had, photographs and what I had got, gathered. And he said, you have about 15 pages there. <laughs> so I said, OK, I'll be back to you again. So... So I came back and I gathered more information. But when I went back to him, I said, I'd like nice pages and I'd like the cover right. I'd like the, the book to feel nice. It's a virtual journey to Crookstown this evening on Where the Road Takes Me. I'm here to meet members of Crookstown Social Club and others. Because of COVID-19 and not being allowed to hold any events for very good reasons, the club instead turned their attention to producing a book entitled The Way We Were. More from The Way We Were will follow in parts two and three on this evening's programme, and that's coming up in a few moments.
It's part two of Where the Road Takes Me, and this evening it's a virtual trip, or a journey in mind and spirit to Crookstown to meet members of Crookstown Social Club. Their book, The Way We Were, has just been published, involving contributions from members and non-members. It's an invaluable social history of the village and surrounding area. The surrounding area takes in Paula Narragut, and that's our first stop in part two. Well, recently, the local Harrier Club there celebrated 100 years. Sheila Delaney is a member of Crookstown Social Club. She's also secretary of Paula Narragut Harrier Club. But she's pretty new to the job. She's only been in the position for 50 years. So, how did they all manage in Paula Narragut with the recent lockdown? We're not too bad, really, John, because we're in the country and we can uh, we walk out around in our own area. We're, like, I'm living in a farm now, like, and we're plenty, plenty area to walk around. And how did you get on during the lockdown? Oh, fine, fine, yeah. yeah. We just go shopping a day in the week and that was it. You're also a member of Paula Narragut Harrier Club, and that's a club that goes back quite some time. Oh, that's my beloved Harrier Club. Yeah, in 1920, we were 100 years there, about a fortnight ago. Of course, we couldn't celebrate. And that club was formerly known as St. Michael's. That's right, yeah, when that was first um, organised in uh, years back. And I know it fell through then, and it was uh, the older generation then that, uh, well, like, my grandfather and own grandmother, they were all implicated. That's how I got involved in from a very young age. And is it true that people were out hunting the day of the Kilmichael ambush and heard the shots from that's there? That's right, yes. Yeah. That was the first day they were out hunting. That's, that's right. A lot of sons and daughters are there now from you know, founding members of the club. Uh, not a lot. Not a, well, not a lot, but there, there are a few. There, there are a few, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's still implicated, yes. So tell me about the club and what you get up to under normal circumstances and you've been pretty successful as well down through the years. Well, I'm secretary of the club with, I don't know, I've got maybe nearly 50 years, let's say, unbroken. And uh, I, I married 38 years anyway and I was secretary before that, long time before that. But um, no, we enjoyed a great, um, great years, um, drag hunting especially, I suppose. And uh, we won a lot of, uh, lot of things. We had lots of good dogs, but we used to travel a lot too. And um, then, uh, like, all of them got too expensive and everything, so we turned to dog shows. And um, we started those just for fun. And um, the next thing, then we said we'd do it for some charity. So there was one member of our club there. She was um, a, a walker, puppy walker with the guide dogs. So we decided that we'd uh, support the guide dogs then. So from there until this day, we're supporting the guide dogs. Historian and author Michael Galvin told us earlier about the influenza pandemic of 1918 to 1919. Coming at the end of World War I, its toll on human life was horrific, claiming the lives of almost 100 million people worldwide and at least 20,000 people here in Ireland. Scientific knowledge regarding the cause or background to the pandemic was poor, and so the blame game was rampant. For a race of people that were normally blamed for everything, on this occasion, Michael Galvin says the Jews more or less escaped. The Jews down to the millennia were always blamed for everything, but they were not blamed for this, obviously. But ironically, just around the corner, the Jewish 
world was going to be decimated by Nazism that evolved during the 20s and 30s. But you get that again, especially in the Bible Belt of America, this blame factor. And the yellow peril as well, blaming China for this, that and the other thing. Disproportionately, I think. Am I correct in saying that geese were to blame on that occasion? Yes, they believe now that uh, this virus came from the subarctic regions through two wild geese migrating to the south, to the centre of the earth. And that they landed actually near the Somme, one group of them landed near the Somme, and the um, virus in the place known as a table transmuted to chickens then to pigs and the swine and then to people, namely American soldiers who were who are billeted there. The funny thing is that you would say, wouldn't show that if that was the case, why didn't these subarctic geese spread the virus down to parts of the American continent? Well, there is evidence of that actually because there was a report of the, um, no, I can't confirm this, but there was a report of an outbreak of this virus in a big chicken farm in Iowa, which would chime almost exactly with the Euro- European scenario. And, and then, of course, across the Asiatic continent as well, because the flu was also rampant in India, Japan, and China. But, sure, we do know that um, that part of the world had very little to do with the Great War or with uh, Western Europe. Some of the symptoms of that flu, Michael, are not too unlike what we are experiencing today, but you could add a lot more serious symptoms as well, like locked jaw, paralysis, your face turning brown. And there was also a reason as well associated with the symptom as to why it was called the Black Death. That's right, because um, one of the symptoms was the skin turning brownish black. But anywhere apart from that at all, John, any grievous, grievous disease at the time, or down through the centuries. The, the word black, the term black, would be used anywhere because it was a negative, evil term. The same as yellow, yellow and black. The symptoms were multiple, and that was one of the reasons why, because a lot was in the imagination. One thing, all right, that they got right at him, no, they didn't know anything about Germans or anything very little at all, but one thing they did get right was isolation. Uh, instinctively and from past experience, they did realize that isolation was one of the weapons against it. Also, they realized that good um, diet, nourishing diet, was also a help. Crookstown Social Club's book, The Way We Were, is readily and easily available. Getting a copy in your hands will be well worthwhile and will while away many leisurely hours for you. The book was compiled by Mary Mullins, who's a native of Crookstown and still lives on the ancestral home at Corabeha. It's a place that's near and dear to her heart. I was born on a farm and I live on a field of the farm and we have a great community. What a great community! We have so many different clubs here. I am chairperson of three clubs, and everybody is so helpful with everybody else. 
Like when I was doing this book, so many people called into my house socially distancing and said, give me a look at the book and I'll do a bit of proofreading in that. They brought photographs. They brought all different stories to me. And I think we just are so lucky to be living in such a lovely locality. Tell me a little bit about your own family, Mary, because you you mentioned there you came from a farming background and your mom was a nurse, but she was a nurse at a time when you got married, you had to lay aside your profession. That's right, yes. So she married a farmer, so she had to give up her nursing career and um, she married my dad in 1949 and um, they had five children. And then when my dad was 49, he got very sick and he passed away. Yeah, that was a very traumatic moment for all of you, and particularly for your mom then, because how many of you were in the family? Five. Five, yeah. Yeah. So she had five to look after. She had five, yeah, down as far as three years old. Yeah. But, you know, we got on with it. We lived up a big, long laneway, and the Murphys, another family, lived in the same lane, and they lost their dad, and there was five children in that house. So you had a lot to compare. We, yeah. And, yeah. you know, we actually had a grand life. We, thought, we, we worked hard, but we made the best of it. And then after secondary school, you got a job in Roach's Stores. And Roach's Stores at the time would have been a very reputable company. It would, yeah. And a great employer. Yes, a great employer. My God, like it was the best. It was fantastic. But I always loved the cosmetic world. And I just go into Blair's, into Mr. Blair in Blair's, and I was in the cosmetic department of Roche Stores. But I wanted to look after one company. And eventually, anyway, he said, there is a job going with a company. I didn't have the money for the train fare to go to Dublin, so he gave me that. I went to Dublin, I got the job, and should the rest is history. 50 years later, I'm still in the cosmetic world right. and love it. And that Mr. Blair, am I right in saying, was he in politics? He was, yeah. yeah. He was an old man, yeah. Yeah. And the company you worked for then was Revlon, was it? That time, yeah. And you still love it, obviously. I still, I love, I was off three days last week and I just couldn't wait for my Thursday morning to come to go back into work. (laughs) That's a great thing to say. Yeah, Yeah. I love the customers coming into the shop. I know them all. I just, I love my life. And isn't that a great way to be? Yeah. Yeah, and a great way to wake up in the morning. It is, yeah. Yeah. My children were the same. Every one of them started off in one job and they said, ma'am, we're not like you. We don't love our work. Well, the three of them love their jobs. Now, they have all changed their jobs and they all love what they're doing. The O'Mahony family of Aherle can be traced back as far as 1811. Today, Ted O'Mahony and his brother Sean make and repair Harleys. It's akin to selling umbrellas in an area with a wet climate. This is hurling territory after all. They know Harleys well. They should do. They play the game themselves often enough. Their father, Timothy, played... And Ted O'Mahony tells me that he himself played minor, junior and senior hurling with Cork. 58 for the minors, 63 for them, the juniors and uh, 67 again he played. I saw a photograph of the uh, team in the book and I noticed that that was Dennis Collins' team as well. I think Dennis Collins was... Yeah, he was young for the day and he was a bit younger but he was coming on the line right at the right. Did you play in Wembley? Did I hear I did, yeah, twice. 66 and 7, there were great occasions, like, we used to go over Friday night, about 7 o'clock, and we'd play in Wembley Saturday evening, and we'd meet all the Irish, they were great for us, we'd play in New Eltham, then it was Sunday, and yeah, there was locals, when I grew up with, we met them all there, we were well treated, looked after well there. Of course, a lot of Irish there at that time. Oh, there was, yeah, especially in New Eltham, like, we'd better chance to meet him in a small, New Eltham was smaller, I needn't tell you, but um, we'd better chance to meet him, like. Obviously, you played for Tildove as well. Oh, God, yeah. Played for him for years. Adult hurling, I suppose, from 1957 to about 1980. 
played three decades anyway, but maybe four. Played for Muscogee, of course. They had Muscogee, great teams in the 60s and 70s, and they were beaten four semi-finals, and they were beaten the county final by the college. So they won all county, but they were great players there. And you remember the days, of course, of Togiaf in, was it a coal shed? Well, that was in Clodov, yeah. Was there was dressing rooms in Courtford, all right. But that was the only place. Ben and Colley had an old railway wagon too, eventually. That they were going, there were the main pitches. When McCrum came, good day, like. But um, the crowds had no pitches of their own, like. They had yeah. fees, they were renting fees off farmers. But um, they were looking to get them at him. They wouldn't get them at all, no. Then it's too valuable, no. Like, to go give you all the fields, you wouldn't be left looking over the ditch. <laughs> <laughs> and insurance, of course, and everything. That's right, yeah. What was training like that time when you were with the Cork team? What compared to what what they're doing now? It was different last year. There's a way more training now. I mean, captains overdone now. There's too much training. They've no break at all around the Christmas or anything now. All the emphasis on fitness. You can't run today. You're bench extra anyway. You won't get your place unless that. Before they'd be placed for a fella. That's what they would, but not anymore. Training is four times harder now. During the flu pandemic of 1918 to 1919, the public were advised on various preventative measures. Isolation was one, and a good healthy diet was also put forward. How well the public adhered to those is not really known, but I would imagine that they found it much more favourable when told to also smoke and drink whisky and port. Let's find out more from historian and author Michael Galvin. My father, actually, he was uh, walking for his uncle at the time, and he was drawing lime from Castlemore with a horse and butt, and he was told that passing through Crookstown, which was very badly affected because of the railway station there, that when he would enter Crookstown, he would um, put his pipe to his mouth and keep smoking and do the same on the way back. Instinctively, and um, maybe with a bit of common sense, people realised that anything strong that would keep back the virus from the oral intake would be a help. That's not that far-fetched, you know. And you're talking about whiskey, port and smoking, as you've mentioned. Yes, yes. The medical basis for that is very, very flimsy, but, you know, at the time, it was a very good guess. And that brings part two of Where the Road Takes Me to a Close. In part three, the final part, we learn more about Crookstown Social Club's book, The Way We Were, and we'll meet some, virtually of course, of its contributors. And all of that will happen after the break. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. It's part three of Where the Road Takes Me, and this evening's program takes us on a virtual journey to the village of Crookstown. Compiled by Mary Mullins, the social club in the village have published a book entitled The Way We Were. It's an invaluable social history to all, regardless of where your home turf lies. One of the contributors to the book is historian and author Michael Galvin, who's been telling us about the influenza pandemic of 1918 to 1919. The pandemic claimed the lives of 100 million people globally and 20,000 people here in Ireland. By June of 1918, then, Michael, the flu was at a very serious level here. What sort of contingency plans were put in place in Cork to deal with it? I know you had the Cork Fever Hospital. That's right. Well, all they could do at that time is, like what they did now, close down cinemas, close down the university, for instance, close down Ferris, stop events like hunt meetings, race meetings, GA matches. They knew all that. Hospitals, of course, increased their capacity the best way they could. Fever hospitals and so on. Workhouses increased their capacity. Also, um, what they could do is, and they did close down schools. They were closed down. They also, in three schools around our area here, Copeen, Lockeriuk, and Kilmory and Kidove, they actually lime-washed the walls 
of the schools and so on. So they were not too far away from the measures that we have at the moment. Also, as you mentioned that, the article in the Crookstown Social Club book, the way we were, in your article, I noticed a photograph and there are people queuing for something and almost half of those people are wearing masks. That's right. That's right. So they knew that. That was actually, I think that was a cinema in some part of Boston or New York. Actually, we got in the internet. And um, masks, of course, was, was known. That was going back to the Crimean War, actually, that, that, that strategy. But as you can see in that photograph, it was almost as difficult that time to persuade people to wear them as it is now. But then I think we must forgive people that time because medical science was not as advanced as it is now. And awareness was not as advanced. So I've been trying to um, give the people that time a lot of credit for what they did. To give people an idea as to how rampant this was, Michael, I know you've written that and you've said just a few moments ago how badly hit Crewstown was and the two dispensary doctors there were ill from the flu. But in McCroom as well, was it three out of five families were affected? That's right. That's a lot. That's right. You see, then again, the problem there was, as in Bandon, as in, as in Willow, I just know about McCroom, you had the railway station. And you had people coming and going, troops coming and going from the war. You had busy fairs, busy markets, and probably people that, of course, had a very much more fatalistic attitude than we have now. Illness and debt that um, was nearer to people than than is now. There was very little denial that time of debt, sickness, and um, disease as we have now. So that people that um, more or less got on with it. They knew there was a problem, but they kind of got on with it. And that then, of course, was no great help either. So therefore, towns like McCroom, Bandon, Germanway, so on, to be logical that they will be more seriously affected. Not far away from where Michael Galvin is, but back in 1920, when the flu pandemic was almost gone, Polinarigate Harrier Club started. It's still going strong and has had many successes with various dogs over the years. For the past 38 years, one of the events on their calendar has been the Paulinarigate Dog Show, funds from which go to the Irish Guide Dogs for the Blind. Secretary of the club for the past 50 years, Sheila Delaney. It is all right, but it was better, I'd say, but like every show, no matter where we go to shows now, they've gone down. And a lot of these shows are pretty serious stuff, Sheila, but this one isn't. This is for people with dogs of all sorts and types oh, and shapes. All sorts and, and types, yeah. But the dogs are nearly more important now than people because they're brushed and combed and washed and <laughs> manicured. And there's more spending dogs now than there is in people. There is, yeah. And I know from the sounds in the background, you have a few yourself, have you? Is it ten you have? I, I have only seven now because there's three that were very old that we had to put them to sleep. Yeah. Yeah, I have the seven there now, but uh, the hunting hounds are my favourites. I have two of those at the moment. Seven dogs takes a bit of caring and walking and exercising. Uh, not really, because when we're in the farm, they're out around every day and they're not sure they're all right. Oh, they're able to exercise themselves. So they can exercise themselves, yes. Yeah. And what sort of money then have you raised for the Irish Guide Dogs for the Blind? Quite a lot, I think, over the past few years. 140 something. Now, well, we had no show this year, as you know. We something 140 plus. Which is a, a fair size. Of a it. fair size, yes. Yeah. Yes. The social club then, that was once known as the Golden Years Club, and you were meeting, I think, in Crookstown Hall, and then that got flooded, so you had to... Oh, no, and then it was in the Cornerstone Bar in Crookstown we were meeting first, when they started, and that got flooded. Oh, it's the Cornerstone got flooded. Twice the Cornerstone yeah. got flooded, and it was uh, one day that we were there, and um, 
his father, Lord Donovan, the parish priest, he came to us and he said, in there's no way, he said that uh, senior citizens, he said, could uh, carry on in these uh, conditions. So there was a room up in the hall, which was in very bad repair, and um, we got onto the hall committee anyway to know would they do something for us, so they did, and we went to help them, and we got out our knitting needles and no bars of wool, and we knitted chickens, small chicks, and we put the, you know, the little small Easter eggs into them, yeah. and uh, we sold them in every shop in town and McCroom, Lissaga, Torelton, and everywhere, and we made 10,000 out of that. It helped Father O'Donovan then, he backed us out then, and uh, we got a grant then, and that helped us out, so we have our own nice room now below in the hall in Crookstown, and a kitchen and all. Since the early 1800s, the O'Mahony family in Arla have very sensibly adjusted their business interests to demands of the times. Today, Ted O'Mahony and his brother Sean not only repair Harleys, but make them as well. I make a few, yeah. And what's business like? Fairly good. Fairly good. The ship was quite early in the year of the, the virus. In March and April it was quite, but it's picked up there in July and August again. There was a bit of movement. What sort of work and time goes into making one Harley, Ted? If you're a good hardly maker, you make one a quarter of an hour. Oh, would you really? Yeah, that's it would have yeah. 20 minutes, but yeah. uh, I know there's friends of mine up the country, they're experts in making hardlies, toppers. But it is a fair attitude, there's a lot of patience and it's hard work like you want to be bang on all the time. If you're a bad operator, you'll just try planking and try hardlying one, the twinkling of an eye. And no problem with getting timber for it? Or Not so easy. You want to get a good timber, just have to get, just have to get the right ash, you could get ash in the piece, have this iron like to be no good. You get more ash in the grains to be better than somebody else wrong. It's a fairly sticky game now. And where would your clients come from then? Well, locally, it's all hardly around Adler. You have a lot of clubs around you, Cloudov, Verog, Valley Rovers, Newsestown. They're the main ones. And you were passing trade. With a passing thread, it's running to bargain. And would a lot of fellas repair Hurleys now rather than get a new one? Oh, God, they would. Hurleys, uh, yeah. like a pair of shoes, you, you have it, you're fond of it, and that's that. Yeah, and if you like and it... And if you break a Hurley, he's mad about it, he'd um, get it repaired and maybe get it repaired a couple of times. So if you like it, you'll stay with it? With a Hurley? Yeah. Yeah, or you get attached to it. Once you got this flu, once you were affected by it, what were your chances of recovery? Quite good enough. I mean, you see, the point was that probably in the rural areas was not affected at all. The virus of 1918-1919, and mind you, it went into 1920 as well, which is little known. This virus affected young teenagers or younger, not so much children as teenagers, because their immunity had not built up. Whereas people of more middle-aged group, cohort, their immunity had built up over the years. Whereas this present one is slightly different. Younger people, it affected. But the rate of recovery, I suppose, was not, I have no figures on it, but it would be quite good enough, I suppose, because I know there was 24 of 20, between 22 and 25,000 died. But at the same time, because there was no lockdown, because there was no medical science, because there was no great awareness of it, you could expect 
and there was no financial resources or nothing like that. And because of the various political comings goings and the war and so on, you could expect the figures to be there. So I could ima- I, I imagine that the recovery rate was pretty good enough, I suppose. And I presume we can learn from that flu as well, because the flu began to abate in late 1918, but then a new mild strain appeared in 1919. So that would teach us not to be complacent. Exactly. A second wave, a second wave, and that, that spluttered on into 1920. And uh, I think that, but I could be wrong, but I heard a medical person saying there one day on the radio that we could be in for uh, new waves of this uh, type again because, you see, in 1918, 1919, unfortunately, in one way, the virus was let rip through the community and die out naturally by 1920. So I didn't appear again till actually, actually the other day. So with this virus, now the way is being kind of arrested and uh, by the vaccine and so on. So it is not burning out, unfortunately enough, fortunately, it is not burning out naturally like the one that in 1918 did with great cost. So therefore, the 100-year cycle might be much short from now on. It could be 10-year cycle, 25-year cycle. No, I'm not a medical person, but that was discussed in the radio and I have an open mind about it. Finally, Michael, how are people in your area, Kilmarie area, coping with COVID-19? Well, there's the usual moaning and groaning about the pubs, but trust me, it is. They're coping very well. I do notice that mask wearing is almost universal. I'm not exaggerating. That is a good thing, as in most places. And, um, of course, they are well informed by the various media. It is not easy, but... I suppose it is as good as it can be. Yeah, and we are, after all, a resilient nation. At least I hope we still are. I hope we still are, yeah. And um, we we overcame a lot of troubles down through the years. I mean, we're going way back to the famine and before it, we had various outbreaks of cholera and so on and various types of influenza down through the years. And we had a bad one in 1968. And uh, there was a very serious cholera outbreak in 1938 which killed nearly 30,000 people, actually, well, 30,000 people affected, a few thousand died, there was no talk about it. Uh, and the funny thing about it is that um, in the pandemic of 1918, the Irish people went through the Great War, they went through the War of Independence, the Civil War, the Economic Depression, the Economic War, the Economic Depression of the late 1920s, the Economic War of the 30s, economic stagnation during the Second World War, that lasted till the 60s. And still, still, the country recovered, which is extraordinary. Historian and author Michael Galvin. So, Krugstown Social Club and their book, The Way We Were. As a social history and reference book, it should be on everybody's bookshelf, library, coffee table, or wherever you keep your books. To find out where it's available, who better to ask than the lady who compiled it? Mary Mullins. It's available all over the place in Bandon, Ballancolig, McCroom, Kilmory, Crookstone, and um, it's selling nicely. That's one project, I presume, there'll be more for 2021 and hopefully without COVID-19. Yes, exactly. We're just waiting now to go back to um, normality, hopefully. We have plans to go back now in March, maybe socially distancing. Because, you know, the, the, the elderly people, they like, well, maybe they're not so elderly, but they love the company. They love the cup of tea. They love the bit of cooking and baking that we do every week. And 
all they want to do is get back to normality. You still have that room in Crookstone Hall, have you? We do, yeah. yeah. And we do. And you have a kitchen there as well, which is We great. have a kitchen there as well. We actually did fundraising and Father Bernard, our, our canon, he got us a, a grant of 20000 and it did up the hall, the room that we have, and it's beautiful. We have all the comforts in the world there. Looking through the book, it's amazing, and I bet you didn't realise it until you went compiling a book, the amount of very interesting and knowledgeable people that you have in your midst. Oh, absolutely fantastic. Like, I am so grateful. I was overwhelmed when I saw the amount of stuff that the people brought me, like Breed McSweeney talking about the Titanic. That was a fantastic story. My thanks to Mary Mullins, Sheila Delaney, Michael Galvin and Ted O'Mahony. My thanks also to Doc Martin, who was in sound this evening. I appreciate very much you sharing a part of your Sunday evening with me. Until Sunday evening next at 7, from myself, John Green and everybody on Where the Road Takes Me, do have a good and safe week. Goodbye for now. fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.